Welcome to the Faculty New Books podcast, covering the latest authors and publications from across the subject spectrum. Khan was by no means the exotic and famous place that it is at the moment. Uh, it was a tiny fishing village in the uh, early to middle uh, 19th century, um, with nothing much going for it. Now, Broom, uh, he's called Broom. Nobody knows how to pronounce his name. It's, it's spelt B-R-O-U-G-H-A-M, but we know for sure that it was pronounced Broom. And the reason we know it was pronounced Broom is that uh, when he became famous, which he certainly did as both a lawyer and an educationist and a, a liberal um, member of parliament, um, when he became famous, he also became very much um, uh, assaulted in the um, illustrated magazines and newspapers of the time. And they constantly showed him either uh, wielding a broom, a brush, or since he was tall and thin, uh, they would present him as a brush in their cartoons. And I'll say a little bit more about that later. But basically, Lord uh, Broom, as he was when he discovered Cannes in the winter of 1834, he had a habit of going with his 13-year-old daughter, not his wife, who was constantly in the background and rather mentally ill and so on, but he had the habit of going to uh, Italy or uh, Italian, various Italian towns and cities uh, in the winter uh, when there was no parliament in sitting. And uh, he took his daughter, Eleanor, and in the winter of 1834, he was coming back and he and Eleanor were about to stay overnight in Nice, which they quite often did. But Nice was closed because of cholera. So they fetched up for the night in this small fishing village about 20 miles further west, southwest of Nice, on the Côte d'Azur, on the Mediterranean. And they, Broom fell in love with it. And so he decided that thereafter, every winter when he had time, he would come and spend time in Cannes. And it was that was how really uh, he came across Cannes. And then Cannes was to discover what he was going to do for it. He was born in Edinburgh, so he was half Scottish. His mother was Scottish. His father was an English um, sort of small landholder from um, the Lake District, from Westmoreland. He did have a, a quite a nice house called Broom Hall. So he was kind of um, lowish upper class, I suppose you would say, not aristocracy. But Broom, Henry Broom, was born in Edinburgh, and uh, he was a child genius. His mother, who might be thought to have been uh, biased, but she wasn't, she wasn't the only one. She remembered that at the, from the very earliest age, he exceeded, as she said, all his contemporaries. Um, and indeed, he was a prodigy. Uh, he finished school uh, at the age of eight. He finished university at the age of 12, finished it, didn't start it at the age of 12. He was quite astonishing. And it's not only his, his mother who remembers remembered him, uh, a colleague of his after Broom's death, uh, wrote, his mind was like a dry sponge. It soaked up everything in the shape of knowledge it came across. And before he was 13, he had learned everything they could teach him at the high school in Edinburgh. He learned languages, science, philosophy, and everything else without the least trouble. And so he was really extremely well known as rather a genius and a polymath from an early age. 
Now, he became a lawyer and he, he got fame as a lawyer, particularly in 1820, when he famously was the defense lawyer for Queen Caroline, the estranged and separated wife of George IV, who had just come to the throne on the death of his father in early 1820. And George IV was determined that he did not want the hideous Caroline of Brunswick to come back from abroad, where she'd been for 20 years, to come back and join him on the throne, or indeed even attend his coronation. And so George IV uh, insisted that the House of Lords the House of Lords should set up a trial, a divorce trial, and he was going to divorce Caroline on the grounds of adultery. Well, I mean, he was one to talk, of course, uh, but and that was well known. The public uh, sided with Caroline as a wronged woman. They didn't like George for his extravagance and his affairs. And Broom, very bravely, considering that the, the king had a lot of power necessarily, Broom bravely... Uh, put himself in the bad books of the king by uh, being Caroline's defense lawyer. And he was so brilliant at this that, in fact, the, the bill, which it was, the bill for divorce, had to be dropped. And so it was a triumph for Broom, a triumph for Caroline, and it made his name uh, countrywide. He was already well known in Parliament because from about 1810, he had been um, a member of Parliament on the Whig side. Now, Whigs were the liberals, the liberals and radicals of the time, uh, and they were opposed to the Tories, the Conservatives. The Tories were in power for the first, more or less, the first 30 years of the 19th century. And so the Whigs were out of power and in opposition. And Broome was one of their leading lights in opposition, constantly with his sarcasms and his cleverness and his knowledge, um, uh, generally making fools of the uh, the Tories in power. So he was famous as a, a member of parliament. He was famous as a lawyer. In the 1820s, he embraced all kinds of uh, reforms and was very important in the reform, particularly of education. Uh, he founded the Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge in order to produce cheap pamphlets written by experts in every subject under the sun. Many of them were written by him, of course, uh, and distributed for a shilling all around the country so that the working class, uh, working classes and the poor, who at that time uh, didn't uh, necessarily attend any schools, uh, there was no universal education in the 1820s, they could then buy these uh, pamphlets and teach themselves, as it were. And it was a very successful start to what became later on in the century, a proper uh, uh, universal education system. So education in, for the poor, but also education for the, uh, the better off and the cleverer people in the country. He it was who, with some colleagues, uh, Jews, dissenters, Roman Catholics, people who were not members of the Church of England, they got together, atheists like himself also, got together to found a university of London. There was no such thing for the great city, the great capital of the country. Um, and if you wished to go to a university in England, 
There were only two at that time, Oxford and Cambridge, and in both of them, you had to be a subscribed uh, member of the, a confessing member, really, of the Church of England. I might just point out, as Broome was Scottish or half Scottish, and as I'm Scottish, uh, that at that time, there were actually four ancient Scottish universities. And indeed, it was to the Scottish universities, particularly Edinburgh, that many English dissenters or Catholics or Jews or people who could not attend Oxford and Cambridge tended to go to take their degrees. Well, Broome was the first president of the new University of London, which he founded, collected money for, um, and generally set going. That university is now University College London, which is where I have taught for um, many, many years, uh, and which is one of the great universities of uh, England or of Britain now. So these were the kinds of things that he had done. Finally, in 1830, the Whigs got into power after many, many years of not being in power. And Earl Grey was the leader, the prime minister, and he chose Broome to be his Lord Chancellor, that is the chief uh, legal officer of the government. And under Broome and Grey, the first great reform act of 1832, which began to right all the wrongs and increase the franchise and set off uh, more reforming measures for the 19th century, that was, how, um, that was what um, Broome was responsible for. So by the time he pitched up in Cannes in 1834, he was in his early 50s, and actually he had passed the zenith of his career because by the end of 1834, the Whigs were out of power again, and Broome was not particularly getting on with his own colleagues and was rather a difficult individual. But that's who he was. He was um, more famous than almost anybody else. Um, in the 1820s, if you were to look at the caricatures and cartoons in the press, you would find that there were three men who featured more than any others uh, at all. And they were George IV, the Duke of Wellington, and Henry Peter Broom. Uh, from 1830, he was Lord Broom as Lord Chancellor. Um, and after that, he carried on doing all sorts of things, but basically um, he was spending quite a lot of time in Cannes, uh, enjoying his winters there, or indeed in France generally. Well, <laughs> he invented it as a, a, a place of um, resort for, particularly for English, British visitors. Now, he wasn't the first to do this for the south of France because Nice, a much bigger town, city, was already um, famous as a place for English people to go and have their holidays. But Cannes was nothing, it was nowhere. And what Brun did was um, having, it, like everything else, he spoke French perfectly. Um, and he got involved quite a lot. He visited Paris a lot. He got to know the king there, uh, the bourgeois king, Louis-Philippe. And Louis-Philippe permitted Broome to um, build, to, to buy land in the hills behind Cannes, uh, which he did in 1835, and to build uh, a villa there. It's a beautiful Italianate villa. It's still there. It's now uh, divided into very extravagant flats, but it was Broome's villa, and Louis-Philippe uh, permitted him to call it a chateau. So he called it Chateau Eleanor after his daughter, Eleanor. 
And he built this chateau and he invited, he invited all his friends, his fellow uh, members of parliament and many uh, aristocrats and lawyers. And they all pitched up and they all built or rented villas um, and spent their holidays in Cannes. Um, Broom being the, um, the the prime mover. What he also did, more than just turning Cannes into a holiday resort for English people, was that he went to the city, the town council, and he said, "Look, you've got natural uh, products here, um, produce which will be useful. You must build a port, which they did in 1836, and you must begin to trade in all your um, all the wonderful local produce that you've got, which were mainly olive oil and uh, sardines and anchovies, and can be became a very important." port for the uh, trading of, uh, particularly of sardines. Uh, so pleased were the French with this, were the, the Canois, that after Broom's death, he died in 1868 at the age of 89 in Cannes, in his chateau in Cannes. Uh, and thereafter, the mayor of Cannes and the council um, set up uh, a statue to him in a very small cobbled square in the um, huddled little old district of Cannes just behind the harbour. Uh, they called the square Broom Square, and it's still there with the statue of Broom standing in the middle. Um, and books and pamphlets were written and gratitude was expressed for Broom as the uh, founder of the prosperity of Cannes. And he also got to know very well the great elder statesman of France, Talleyrand. And there is a rather amusing uh, description of uh, Broom and his, his uh, knowledge of French. I'll say a little bit more about Cannes in a moment. But one of his colleagues, um, his, his um, uh, colleagues in England, Thomas Creevy, described him uh, sharing a carriage with him. Uh, in 1831, and saying, I was more astonished at him than ever. By his conversation with old Talleyrand, it appeared most clearly that he, that is Broom, had been intimately acquainted with every leading Frenchman in the revolution. That's a joke, of course, because Broom was only 11 years old at the time of the French Revolution, <laughs> but he knew all about them. And indeed, with every Frenchman and every French book that Tally mentioned, he, Broom, always led in this conversation as soon as Tally had started his subject. That gives you a sense of uh, both how people viewed Broom as an astonishing figure, comic in some ways, but amazing in others. And as far as what he did for Cannes, so we've got the mayor say, uh, uh, talking about the gratitude of the Cannois. We've also got quite a good memoir written in 1857 by the daughter of um, David Brewster, who was another Edinburgh person who was the famous scientist and inventor of the kaleidoscope. And Margaret talks about what um, Broom did for Cannes and that he turned it, uh, he, he, it was he who decided on making it into a port. It was he to, who told the people of Cannes what they should do. They followed him and, uh, and, and two, two English churches and a Scottish church sprang up in Cannes to cater for all Broom's friends and all the friends of, the, of his friends. So the idea is that he was extraordinarily 
active. And indeed, that's the thing about him his whole career. He was the most energetic and active of people, uh, giving endless speeches. He gave the longest speech ever in Parliament of nearly seven hours, non-stop, uh, in 1827 on law reform. And there are just so many things that he was in a way an instigator of or an ex a shiny example of, um, including this uh, c coming together uh, with France. And don't forget that at this time and through most of the 19th century, uh, Britain and France were enemies. Certainly they had been until the disposal of Napoleon in 1815. And they were certainly not necessarily um, very keen to be friendly with one another. But Broom, you could say, was a kind of glue. Um, I mean, he, uh, in one person, he managed to bring together uh, the British and the French in a kind of cooperative and friendly way? Well, I suppose there are three really. One is that um, it is an interesting, um, it sheds an interesting light, a moment of light on the history of Cannes. If you're interested in, in how uh, a small town for, from 3,000 inhabitants came to be one of over 70,000 inhabitants today and how it began its, um, its route to international fame and glory, really. And, um, uh, uh, you know... Uh, that's that, it's it's an interesting it's not just a sidelight it's an interesting moment in the history of Cannes, but it's also um, which of course is now Cannes is now of course mainly famous for the annual film festival and all the the Hollywood stars uh, posing on the red carpet. It's also, I think, secondly, remarkable, uh, a remarkable contribution showing what one person, one man could do. And this is actually true of Broom in all these other areas I've indicated very briefly, um, that one man could actually, uh, at that time, in the 1830s, he could actually move, uh, uh, make, a, make a progress happen and move something on uh, visibly in a way that we didn't have to wait uh, another hundred years to find out about. And so I think he's an, he's an interesting example of what we know of as the Victorian energetic entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurialism, um, uh, activity, uh, go-getting, progress, radicalism, moving on, steam engines, photography, uh, you name it, uh, a, num a number of new inventions and new activities sprang into life. Um, Broom had his finger in very many of those pies, uh, but he, and so he is actually a kind of example in one man of that kind of extraordinary Victorian energy. And finally, um, as I said, in this time of uh, France and Britain being you know, military enemies over the last few centuries, here was an example of cooperation. And here was somebody who made it easier for the British to do what they're still doing, which is to zoom to the south of France for their holidays um, to places like Nice and the Saint-Tropez and, of course, Cannes.